Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is J.W. Chu, and today I'm joined by my good friend, MD and PhD candidate, David Mazamder. Welcome to a brand new world. A Brain New World aims to paint a picture of the future by contextualizing up-and-coming research and initiatives in the field of neuroscience. And although I'm not in research myself, I've always had a love for and a curiosity about anything related to the brain. This is something I've always wanted to share with the rest of the non-scientific community, so welcome. Uh, and with that intro, uh, David, you're the first episode. How are you? Hey, thanks for the welcome, JW. I'm honored to be here. Honestly, we, we had this idea when, like... December of last year, right? So it's been a, it's it's been a, a process, months. but yeah. now we're here. So on that topic, you know, you're an MD and PhD con- uh, candidate, um, big deal right there. Um, so kind of, you know, talk about yourself, how, how you chose that, that path. Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah. So um, I guess it began in undergrad. I, you know, I always thought that I wanted to do research, but um, I didn't really know in what. And uh, you know, my first summer, I was working in a lab at Princeton, and uh, I was trying to genetically engineer these nematodes, these tiny one millimeter transparent worms, to express uh, fluorescent proteins in their in their neurons, so that we could actually watch their brains uh, think in real oh. time. You know, with those neurons would light up, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And this book that my PI recommended to me, I know, academic bookworm. Here you go, fitting the stereotype, but. It was uh, written by the Nobel laureate Eric Kandel about his journey through science. And he painted a picture of, the, over the course of his career, uh, gaining a better understanding of the brain to the extent that they could actually translate uh, some of these insights into new clinical therapies for people who with uh, brain disorders that we couldn't do anything about before. So I just thought that was such an incredible opportunity. And there's all these new techniques that are uh, being unveiled in neuroscience every week, every month that uh, I thought, you know, this is the best way to jump in right now. Perfect. I know that you're studying consciousness. Pretty big topic, but let's start with something simple, which I don't think will end up actually being simple. But how do we currently define consciousness? And how is that different from something a little bit more easier to understand, like awareness? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And it's an it's important distinction. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, folks who study consciousness think a lot about because the words that we have for trying to articulate what we're talking about when we're thinking about things like consciousness, awareness, attention, all get sort of jumbled when we're talking about them in uh, using those words in everyday speech. Right. Um, so, you know, so something like awareness, when we're thinking about it in terms of how to study the brain, uh, awareness we usually think of uh, something, uh, some fact about the world, some, some particular sens- sensory information that makes it into uh, our consciousness. And that, that we can say at that point that we're aware of something, right? Mm-hmm. We have an awareness of that something. But consciousness, when we're talking about consciousness uh, in the context of studying what gives rise to it in the brain, we really mean what uh, the whole experience encompasses. So we're thinking about everything that you're aware of at any given moment, including whether it's encoded in memory or not, and you can remember it or late, later or not including whether it's something that you are processing, like thought, or something that is just happening to you without even having to think about it, like, uh, you know, the colors that you're experiencing in the world or the sounds that you're hearing 
uh, those things are things that you don't really have to think about. Uh, those are processes that your brain is doing without you being aware of them necessarily, but they're still part of your conscious experience. Interesting. So consciousness is more of like this instant temporal kind of experience. Is, is that a good sure. way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, there's debate about this actually, about to what extent uh, do we mean uh, all of the con- all of the cognitive processes that are going on at any given moment in time in your brain? Mm-hmm. Uh, or or do we, are we only referring to a subset of them when we're talking about consciousness in terms of what in the brain is producing that phenomenon? So different theories have a different uh, take on this, but at least the ones that we're going to talk about today, I hope, will uh, really try to take this more expansive view of everything that's going on uh, in terms of your conscious experience, everything that you are aware of together in one experience uh, from moment to moment. Gotcha. Okay. I think that's a good segue to kind of get into the nitty gritty um, of your current research. Um, so I know they kind of started off as, um, or there are currently a couple of theories out there and, and the current research that you're doing um, uses the adversarial model, um, which, you know, I think the first time I think we were talking about this before was um, when scientists were testing Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, so why don't we kind of go over how, in the end, um, we kind of came to this point of needing this kind of new, or not new, it's been around, but this adversarial model to, to get further um, in the research of consciousness. Yeah, uh, that's a, I, I love the fact that you brought up uh, Albert Einstein's theory of relativity there, because uh, this is sort of uh, one of the canonical examples of, of adversarial research, uh, adversarial uh, uh, sort of pitting two theories against each other uh, and trying to articulate what their hypotheses would be beforehand and then have two independent teams of scientists making those uh, measurements to test those hypotheses together and then collaborating on the interpretation to make sure that we're coming to one conclusion. Because otherwise what happens often whenever you have, especially uh, folks who are really invested in a particular theory, is that they'll come up with arguments for why the other side forgot something or left out some analysis, or if they had tweaked their experimental design, then of course it would have shown how their preferred theory would have, would have worked better uh, to, fit the, to fit what was going on in the experiment. So you, you know, these are all pitfalls that we can run into when folks in, a, in the scientific community are not speaking the same language. And so that's really what an adversarial collaboration attempts to do. We're trying to especially in consciousness, when, especially just as we just mentioned, those terms about, that we use to describe what's going on in the brain in terms of consciousness are, are, uh, have many shades of meaning. And if we're not sure that we're using them in the same way, uh, then we can be talking past each other rather than with each other. Right. So this adversarial collaboration that we're trying to use uh, involves teams from around the world. Uh, it's called the ARC Cogitate Consortium. It's mm-hmm. uh, Advancing Research in Consciousness. Uh, through, uh, through testing these two theories, uh, global neuronal workspace theory and integrated information theory. And so we have these two teams have come together and they've put together a set of experiments that we're going to try to test uh, that pit these, the predictions of these two theories against each other in terms of what activity in the brain is producing conscious experience. Gotcha. And, and I know, because, you know, you sent me a ton of research articles about kind of like almost like a literature reviews worth. I think one of the main differences, at least from, from the readings and kind of like something that they keep on talking about is what's more important is, are these, is, is it the back of the brain that's gives a rise to this idea of consciousness or is it something more along the lines of, Oh, you're taking in a lot of different information from different areas of the brain. And then there's one 
area, which, you know, the, the global network or the GNW, which you refer to, says, oh, hey, the front of the brain is the one that's kind of processing it all together, but there is not, it's not just the back of the brain that's doing all the work. So why don't we go over kind of what GNW is and then the integrated information theory as well. Sure, sure. And you guys sort of gave us a preview there, which is great because, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the more times you hear it, uh, the better, the easier it'll be to understand these, uh, the jargon. So global neuronal workspace theory, that's this GNW that you mentioned. And the idea there is that, you know, many different parts of the brain are specialized to process different things about the environment. Uh, you know, we have our visual system for processing everything that's all the information about light that's coming in through our eyes. You know, we have the auditory system for processing all the, the sound pressure waves uh, that's coming in through our ears. Right. So these are uh, these are different parts of the brain that are feeding in information through uh, specialized processes that then eventually are uh, moving into a, a portion of the brain where information becomes like, oh, that's the sound of a dog barking. Mm. That's the sight of uh, JW sitting on his couch. You know, these are these are the kinds of information uh, that is relevant to uh, the way that we are modeling the world and interacting with it. And so once you get to that point. Uh, the idea is that information that is particularly relevant or mm. important or dominant in our in our sensory experience makes it to the uh, prefrontal cortex, right? At that, 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 that point, there's some kind of ignition event among this network of highly connected neurons across these different sensory portions of the brain as well as the prefrontal cortex. Why the prefrontal cortex? The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that's like right behind your brow and right in the front of the brain. And it's really important for executive uh, function, which is uh, all of these in, in, uh, important uh, tasks like scheduling, like making decisions. Or like making sounds as a cat when she's hungry. Nora, come here. Do <laughs> <laughs> you not want to come? No? Okay, she's going to stay over there and just meow. But yeah, okay. Continue yeah, exactly. That's a decision, <laughs> right? That probably involved her prefrontal cortex right yeah. there. So that's, uh, you know, that's, these are all things that, that are involved in the prefrontal cortex and, and it plays a large part in uh, what occupies our conscious experience, right? Is, our, is all of these things that we have to weigh from moment to moment. So, you know, the prefrontal cortex is a big portion of that. That's in the front of the brain. And that's a piece, a key piece of this network of neurons, this global neuronal workspace that is binding all of this information from these different sensory areas together into one conscious experience where you're able to be aware of many different pieces of information at once. Right. Gotcha. So integrated information, how does that sound? That, no, that was a great overview. I know, I know I'm, I'm just a little bit of like kind of scared to get into the, the next model because honestly, <laughs> all the papers you kind of sent me. Yeah, it's sure. it just like, oh, is this value going to be above zero or below zero? But then all the actual computation that goes into it just went straight over my head. <laughs> So, uh, why don't you give us an overview of that one? (laughs) It's it's a it's a tough one, right? And integrated information theory. So, integrated information theory is working sort of backwards from global neuronal workspace theory. Global neuronal workspace theory sort of builds on our knowledge of how different parts of the brain work, and thinks how can how then would we have some kind of network in the brain that integrates that information to produce something that looks like our our conscious experience. Integrated information theory works backwards. It says, what does our conscious experience kind of look like? And so then what physical structure would there be? What are, what, how can we use the structure of our conscious experience to inform what we might be looking for in the brain in terms of 
what is contributing to that conscious experience. And the way that it goes about doing that is by writing down uh, a bunch of mathematical formulae that uh, that formalize the these 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 certain precepts about what uh, our conscious experience is like. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a whole bunch of math that goes into it. And um, uh, what that means is that eventually we can get down to uh, an analysis that produces a single number called phi. And phi, uh, if phi is, uh, is, is above zero, then the thing is conscious. And if it's below zero, it's not conscious. And this, this number... Uh, phi, uh, when I say that it kind of, you can apply it to the thing, uh, it means that you can apply this to a thermostat if you wanted to, because all of this is just mm-hmm. math, right? It's just mathematical equations. Right. You me- take some measurements, you plug it into the formulae, you get out this phi number, and, and that will tell you whether or not this thing is conscious. And so you can apply it to a rock, you can apply it to a thermostat, you can apply it to your computer, you can apply it to your cat, uh, you can apply it to you and me. So you can see to what extent... Uh, these things are processing or integrating information mm-hmm. uh, in the way that we would expect uh, for something that is conscious, that is experiencing consciousness the way that we, you and I do. That's actually interesting because I, I don't know if you've read this, but um, it's by Michio Kaku. He's like a world-renowned physicist, but he wrote a book called The Future of the Mind. And essentially, he pretty much goes over consciousness in one of his chapters and like the different levels of consciousness that you can have. And he assigns a total of three levels, I believe, if I remember correctly. And zero, the level zero is pretty much like you could assign this to a thermostat, saying that there is an input and an output and there's a feedback loop. Therefore, to some degree, that is an indication of some type of quote-unquote consciousness. And that goes all the way up to the highest level, which is human consciousness. Um, and he says um, that that's essentially, when you reach that level, it's about how can you simulate the future for yourself? going forward. So it's not just, oh, some type of event happened. For example, uh, my cat, Nora, she got hungry. Therefore, her belly starts crumpling. Like, that's a very just, like, one-way type of thing. But if she says, or the other higher level of that would Something be... Something I'm very very familiar with. I can be sympathized yeah. with Nora. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you've met her. Like, she, she, yeah. she loves food. Um, <laughs> and then the, the higher level of all of that would be, hey, I'm hungry. How can I optimize my surroundings or what I'm doing in order so that I'm not hungry. And then that starts getting to a lot of the other, you know, things that would make something more conscious than, let's say, a rock. So it's really interesting that even something that doesn't, what we would consider, like, in everyday language, have a consciousness can still, quote-unquote, using a bunch of math, end up having consciousness. Have they actually done, like, an an analysis with, like, an inanimate object to get, like, a by number like would this work on a computer <laughs> yeah yeah so you could do it on a computer oh. um the the thing is that uh transistors on computers are relatively simple compared mm-hmm. to a neuron for example and so there is isn't that much information <laughs> that's, that's being integrated uh-huh. by even even uh you know a, a computer that's made up of, of many thousands and millions uh, of these uh transistors oh what, what would happen if it wasn't like a classical computer like let's say quantum like with the Sure, if you look into like a quantum computer, or there are also folks who are building chips that are sort of neuromorphic, and so mm-hmm. the idea there is that they're sort of mimicking the the behavior of, of neurons that you see in the brain. Mm-hmm. And um, there, you can see that you know you can make the argument that maybe there would be uh, would be closer to human consciousness. But then, you know, if the base level unit is uh, more capable, then the question becomes how can you structure it in an architecture that 
actually integrates the the most information uh, that that it, that is able to produce a above zero phi, <laughs> and that I think they haven't uh, we haven't we haven't been able to achieve that yet. Gotcha. Are you saying your your introduction here, Nora? No. <laughs> All right. She's announcing her consciousness. <laughs> um, so uh, right now we talked about like. The two of the theories out there. There sure. are a bunch of others um, to name oh, yeah. you Dozens. while I like, bring it up because obviously I don't remember all this, but there's something called higher order thought. There's recurrent processing. Why is it that we've kind of come down to these two? That is a great question. Um, so in part, the answer to that is that these two theories are some of the most widely supported mm-hmm. in the, in, among the folks who study consciousness. So they, they find these two theories, global neural workspace theory and integrated information theory, some of the most promising. In part, it's because the particular folks who support these two theories got together at a conference a few years ago and decided that they were going to get together and <laughs> and make this adversarial collaboration happen. Uh-huh. Um, and in part, it's because these two theories are, are sort of well-developed enough in their theoretical aspects that they can actually produce hypotheses based on particular experiments that we that work together. So these two, these two particular theories can both make predictions based on the same experiments that we can then test against each other. You know, when you're talking about a model, and it doesn't even have to be like a consciousness model, like any kind of model, whether it's like a financial model or anything, which is kind of more my field, you give it some inputs, and then you want it to simulate something such that you get an output that's to your liking. So what's the expected results that each of these models are um, kind of striving for during this, for, for this research that you're currently doing? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a couple of there's a couple of uh, areas where they are making differential predictions. So one of these is uh, on the point of where in the brain right. the consciousness, uh, the con- the information that's relating to the conscious experience is occurring. So as we mentioned with global neural workspace theory, prefrontal cortex is very important. It's a it's an integral part of the global neural workspace that network of neurons that's integrating information from across different sensory areas, as well as into the executive function. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's right in the front of the brain. So we would expect to be able to decode information about uh, what it is that the person is consciously experiencing in that moment from the front of the brain, from prefrontal cortex in particular. Versus uh, something like integrated information theory, that's proposing that... uh, you know, a lot of the architecture of the brain in the occipital cortex, which is right behind, right at the back of the head, mm-hmm. as well as in the temporal cortex, which is right over the temples here behind your ears, that those two parts of the brain in particular, as well as parietal cortex, sort of right on the top, are really uh, well-structured to produce the kinds of integration of information that satisfy the mathematical postulates of integrated information theory the best. And so it seems like those areas are the most promising for producing positive phi, positive phi, which means, again, that the thing is conscious. So if, you know, that's sort of the back of the brain, we're sort of pitting the back of the brain against the front of the brain in that sense. Of course, you know, there's all kinds of nuances about exactly when that's happening. Uh, um, and so that's another differential prediction, right, where in the, if, if information has to be processed through all these different methods, different modules in the brain, before it ignites the global neural workspace, then that has a very particular time window during which we would expect to be able to decode 
information about the person's conscious experience, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of if things are happening right in the back of the brain, then that proposes that the inform by information integrated information theory, IIT, that we should be able to uh, figure out what the person is consciously experiencing, right as soon as that as soon as those neurons are lighting up. So there's where it's happening, when it's happening, and then there's another piece here which is also um, which parts of the brain are talking to each other to produce this information. Okay. Um, so again, we mentioned this global neural workspace theory. Uh, you know, that's involving all these higher sensory order areas, as well as the prefrontal cortex in the front of the brain, versus integrated information theory, which is involving a lot of these posterior areas in the temporal cortex and the parietal cortex and occipital cortex way in the back. Gotcha. So these, these, these three major pieces are sort of how these two theories are differing whenever we're going to try to put someone through a controlled experiment where they are looking, uh, where they're experiencing something different. Gotcha. The, and, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was just going to kind of, because you said looking, and I'm assuming that's kind of like almost like a Freudian slip because you guys are using, you know, visual images as kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, you caught me there. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I kind of want to ask, um, it also kind of gives a little bit more light on how far we've come um, in the field of neuroscience, but why are we focusing on vision? Is it because it's, you know, my guess is that we've been studying it the most, um, we understand the pathways the most. I mean, whenever you take like, Neuro 101, you realize, oh, like there is a division of how lines in certain orientations are processed by the brain and kind of that all melts together into an image. So is our understand because our understanding of vision so much farther along than the rest of the senses, is that why we're using it, I mean, in your research today? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great description of, of exactly why. <laughs> that's part of part of the part of the picture there. Um, there's another piece of it as mm-hmm. well, and I love the way that you described it as melting together <laughs> to produce the images that we that we're that we're aware of, right? The information that we're that we're aware of. That's a great way to 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 put the the mathematical function, the convolution that that has been so successful at describing what exactly is going on in the brain and the visual system. Um, and that's why a lot of folks are talking about convolutional neural networks, for example, as uh, revolutionizing the way that computers can process images in a way that's similar to the way that the brain accomplishes mm-hmm. that task, uh, that categorizes images as dog or tree or plant. So the other reason uh, that, the, that why we're using the visual system as a primary means is, is that um, most of our devices, uh, people are such visual creatures, and we have such a huge portion of our, of our cortex that's taken up with just processing images and we've designed our physical world around us to, in a very similar way mm-hmm. uh, in, by using, for example, computer screens with monitors that have insane refresh rates, right, and great resolution and in a way that we haven't done, for example, with aud- auditory signals. So um, any, anybody who's making a podcast, for example, is going to know that, that it's much trickier uh, and a lot of audio equipment is much more finicky and the timing, exact timing on a millisecond precision is almost impossible to come by mm. when you're trying to synchronize different audio tracks versus the same problem. We don't come across that when we're, when we're using day-to-day visual equipment like computer monitors and lights, the LEDs that we can control very precisely. And so those, that's another reason just for experimental feasibility that it, it makes it very useful to use the visual system uh, to, make, to make sure that we're establishing uh, precision control over our experiments and what, what images we're, we're 
we're stimulating people with. Exactly. So it's not just like, you know, our understanding, but it's also kind of like hardware issues. Yeah, <laughs> in exactly. <a> way. <laughs> gotcha. We're all limited by the same, uh, the same set of uh, uh, technology. Gotcha, gotcha. So scientists or no. In a way, I feel like there's three possible outcomes of the current research that you're doing. Either GNW is right, the integrated theory is right, or both of them are wrong. Would you agree? <laughs> That's, I think, I think the, the folks who, especially the folks who are uh, arguing for one or the other might, uh, might quibble with you on that one. But broadly, yes. Um, you know, it may be the case that all of these various hypotheses, remember I, I described three different areas of predictions that mm-hmm. we were looking at, uh, that they could all be separate, uh, oh, okay. separately, you know, one swing one way or the other for these two theories, mm-hmm. or they could all swing towards one theory or all swing towards the other. So, um, you know, the challenge really, and the most exciting part for me, especially uh, as, as one of the experimentalists, someone who's testing these theories, not invested in either one, I'm most excited by uh, the potential for getting some of these hypotheses swinging towards one theory and some towards the other, rather gotcha. than all one way or the other. Because that really means that we have some room to develop these theories further in order to accurately describe what's going on in the brain. That, I feel like, is probably the most likely oh, answer okay. as, well as, the, uh, as well as the most exciting. So in that sense, this, uh, this research is uh, um, exactly what any scientist would, <laughs> would hope for. Okay, so then in total there are four. Let's say one theory or the other theory is completely right. Both of them are wrong, in which case I feel like we go back to square zero and we have to kind of think about different models or maybe sure. explore the ones that weren't as popular as these two. Sure. Or what you, and I think most people would agree, um, is the most likely is that, you know, in maybe two out of three, GNW is right, and then the other one, integrated theory is right. But then that kind of comes to the question of, does that mean that there's going to be a unifying theory almost? Just like, you know, what we kind of seeing in, in physics, like they kind of want this unifying theory. Is, is it kind of some, a direction that we could also see with consciousness? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the hope, right? Is the the hope? I think anybody who goes into this research is really hoping that someday all scientists are going to come to the conclusion about one particular theory of the brain, and it may be the case that that particular theory that actually describes what how the brain produces our conscious experience, everything that we smell and see and taste and think and feel, mm-hmm. is it may not be around yet, right? It may not be floating around there out in the in the literature, and uh, that honestly is one of the most exciting outcomes uh, that that this could be the start of, of a new paradigm for, for consciousness research. And, uh, and you know, I think really, um, to, to be a little bit humble about this, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not that we're going to have the last word on the arbitrating between global neuro- neuronal workspace theory and integrated information theory. This is really just the start of putting these two theories in conversation. And really having that conversation is the way that we're going to advance consciousness research. Because if people keep siloed in their own communities, their own bubbles, if you will, of, of folks who are uh, advocating for a particular theory, we're never going to be able to actually, uh, you know, tell the difference between how the brain um, produces consciousness if we're not pitting these different theories against each other rather than, um, and, and put, actually, putting them into conversation with each other rather than pushing one or the other in, a, in, a, in its own silo. So, you know, I think the other piece of this, uh, you know, you mentioned four outcomes, but really, we're we're measuring all of these uh, all of these features. You know, I guess again, I said the timing, the place, and the connectivity between brain areas to to test the theories, uh, test these two theories. But we're doing so in three different methods. Mm-hmm. So we're 
we're looking in patients with epilepsy in the hospital who have electrodes implanted in the brain. And so that gives us really high precision. Uh, we know exactly where in the brain these electrodes have been planted. And we also know uh, we can measure at very high uh, temporal resolution. So many, many samples per second, we're able to look at the electrical activity in the brain. We can also look at, without doing any kind of surgery, we can look at healthy, po healthy folks and give them um, uh, a magnetoelectroencephalography. So that's an MEEG for, for short. And that's really about uh, measuring the electrical and magnetic activity produced by neurons in your brain, but without ever doing uh, any kind of <laughs> surgery. So it's all through the skull. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of you're wearing a cap, uh, you're placed under this big machine, and your and your your brain waves are are measured, and that's that's not a um, not quite as spatially specific. Uh, although there are ways that you can analyze the data to try to suggest where in the brain these signals are coming from, but it is still very uh, temporally specific. So we can have very high sampling frequency. And then there's another way, right? So this functional uh, magnet, magnetic uh, resonance imaging. Mm -hmm. So this is the uh, fMRI, fMRI yeah. for short, and this is the idea where you you can measure. The, by by uh, by using this magnetic resonance, you can look at where in the brain the blood is flowing, and that gives you an, a sense of where in the brain uh, neurons are being most active at any given moment in time, and so that's uh, that's a great way to look at spatially very specific in the brain. You can look at the entire brain volume and where is the blood flowing and see which areas are most active, but it's a little bit slower because again this is on the rate at which blood flows rather than mm -hmm. the rate at which neurons fire, and that's you know, about a thousand times less sensitive. So, you know, each of these has their advantages and disadvantages, and we're trying to use all three. Uh, uh, we're using, we're testing these, these folks in the same experiments mm -hmm. uh, and testing the same hypotheses with the same analyses, just with these three different methods of measuring what's going on in the brain. So it may be the case, you know, we got those four outcomes, and uh, you multiply them by these three different methods, and you could have 12 different scenarios. <laughs> Gotcha. So it's really going to be a, a richness of data, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches for, for anybody who's uh, invested in this kind of uh, studying big data in the brain, like uh, like myself and other folks on our team. Gotcha. Well, Nora's telling us to start moving along. I think. <laughs> so, kind of going to a point I, I brought up a little bit earlier, but these are we're all kind of this research is kind of currently trying to come to consensus on, on a specific way or a way to model consciousness right now. And obviously sure. we're in the very, very early stages of this, but as someone, you know, as an experimenter for this research, where do you see this kind of going? Um, what are we going to end up actually simulating with these models? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, what, where, what is the end goal here? Right. I think, you know, if we can have an accurate description, an accurate model of what's going on in the brain to produce conscious experience, that's, uh, there's a lot of ways that we can go with that. I mean, that's really, fundamentally, that's connecting the, our minds and what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis with physically what's going on in your body and your brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that mind-body connection, that's the ultimate uh, goal of this. You know, there are a lot of applications for that, of course. You know, we can talk about what that would mean for understanding patients who are going through hallucinations and psychosis. Mm -hmm. We could actually see what's going on in their brain if we could have an accurate model of, what, of how their brain is producing, what they're consciously experiencing. 
and we could maybe make some interventions on that. You know, if we could if we could change the pattern of neurons that are activating those hallucinations, we could prevent psychosis and hallucinations in a way that's much more targeted than what a lot of the uh, pharm- pharmacological agents, a lot of the drugs that we use now to do that, gotcha. uh, can do. I think you know, we could one ahead. other thing that kind of pops into mind is pain, right? That's such a big... Yeah. I don't want to say pain point, but like it's such a big thing out there where you know, how someone actually experiences that is completely different from person to person. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, as a physician or someone that's administering drugs, like how would anyone know exactly how much to give you of an opioid or whatever the case might be, depending on how much pain you are in? Would this help in kind of giving a quantitative evidence-backed um, kind of number for what my pain feels like from zero to 10? Yeah, sure. I mean, if we could figure out what what in this conscious experience is actually relating to pain and mm-hmm. where, you know, how the brain is producing that feeling, that sensation, then yeah, of course we could, we could, we could, if we could figure out a way to measure brain per, a person's brain activity uh, in real time, then we could, we could uh, make sure that we're addressing that appropriately. Interesting. Okay. And uh, this is kind of just me kind of shooting off now because Obviously, this has implications in the medical field, but you know anything that we kind of learn about the brain, I feel like is going to start trickling into other industries. And the first thing sure. that comes into mind, because there's so much hype about it these days, is kind of the metaverse in a way. Um, for and the, the reason I think of this is because for someone that's possibly in a coma, and there's a lot of cases where people are in a coma and they are conscious, they are aware even of the fact that they can't move their body, but their mind is racing. They can hear people talking to them. Will we be able to give these people another life inside of another, you know, a virtual world if we understood how to decode consciousness inside the brain? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a, that's a huge promise, right? If, if we could figure out what activity in the brain is producing their conscious experience and that person is locked in, but they're there, they're still thinking, they're still feeling, they are experiencing the world, then we would be able to read out what that is and we could give them a new voice and we could give them the ability to interact with the world uh, either virtually or if we could you know, fit them with, uh, with, with some kind of exoskeleton or other ways to, to interact with other folks. Gotcha, okay. So it kind of helps painting a much broader picture than just you know pitting two theories against each other because... I think that's sure, kind of it's one a of the main... academic exercise, but the implications could be huge if we could actually figure out how the brain is producing, what in the brain is producing our conscious experience. Definitely. Yeah. I, I think I kind of want to take this even a step further because I don't know if you've ever read The Giver, um, but it's about a, it's a book where it's a society that's kind of fed information, and you, you don't even know what the word red means. You don't know that the color red is red. Hmm. And the reason I bring this up is because everyone's perception of what red might be to them is different. And I think you can kind of attribute that to qualia, which is the subjective experience of whatever your uh, sensory information you're getting. So how red something is might, you know, some people might be like, ah, no, that's more magenta than red. So would we be able to kind of break that down even more and possibly even transfer that subjective experience between people? Yeah, and I think you could do this for a number of things, right? Someone who is a trained musician, if they go to the symphony, they hear something very different than what, uh, than what someone who's never heard music before in their life would hear if they went to the symphony, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's, they're both hearing the same notes, but 
their conscious experience of it is going to be uh, very different. And if you could uh, transfer the either direction, whether the the wonderment of of listening to a full symphony orchestra for the first time, or the you know the all the appreciation for the detail and the interplay between the different lines and harmonies and uh, motifs and how those were used in the context of the, that century of music, you know, from someone who is an experienced musician, you could transfer those back and forth between those two people. I feel like that would make an incredible, incredible experience. Again, that depends on not only solving this problem of how do we figure out how the brain is producing conscious experience, but also then the ability to read that and write that right. in real time. Sounds like a, a couple of steps in the future. <laughs> but you know, it would have been super helpful back in you know when we were in acapella back in the day. Oh yeah, sure. You know, if you we could were, get everybody blending together, exactly. The same, like, hey, this is not what I'm chord. hearing, guys. Like, <laughs> one of you is way too loud right now, <laughs> or like, yeah. I know exactly who's out of tune, but I'll keep it to myself. And you, if you could just share all that information, would be spot on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Well, any kind of team activity, exactly. right? Exactly. I mean, could be activity. a huge productivity enhancer in the future. A big business opportunity potentially. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm, I'm currently uh, learning golf right now. And when you go to a lesson, they're always like, oh, yeah, you want to try to feel this or you want to do this. I mean, if, if, like even sports, I feel like if you could transfer that, it'd be so much easier to understand what they're trying to say and then decode it in your own way once you kind of understand exactly how that person's feeling about it. Right. So it's not right. just, you know, having the same exp- or, or sharing experience. It's also, I think, another way of, I think kind of, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but learning at a faster rate almost because you're taking in more information than you would have originally from the same experience. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. It could be a big learning aid as well. Um, and I think one other thing that I want to kind of point to as we kind of close up is there's a lot of research out there that's kind of decoding maybe neuron by neuron of the whole brain or layers of the brain. Like, how do you think that would be helpful? Because these, there's, these are huge, like even the BRAN initiative for the states, like these are huge, well-funded projects right now. How would any advancements in those fields help with this research that's currently going on? Um, oh, JW, that's that's really essential, right? Because neuroscience uh, has there are many ways to tackle what's going on inside the brain, right? You can look at it cell by cell because the unit of computation is, of course, the neuron. Uh, you can look at it in whole brain regions or the whole brain at once, and what what uh, where the activations are across the brain. And of course, there's all the levels in between, whether on the you know how a couple of neurons together are connected. Uh, how whole tissue, how the whole tissue of the cortex is in, is what their architecture looks like, and we really need all of it, <laughs> to be honest. You know, <laughs> you really need, uh, really, we really need in order to get the best understanding of how to read and write uh, to the brain. You know, if that's what we're really looking for, then we really need to know what's going on top to bottom. Uh, partially from an ethical standpoint, right? You you don't want to uh, be modifying something that you can't be sure of what the uh, what the side effects could mm-hmm. be. But you also, uh, just from an accuracy standpoint, you know, the way to do that is to modify individual neural activity. And you want to be targeting that to the circuits that really matter for the thing that you're trying to achieve, whether it's a particular cognitive task or uh, the particular qualia of what it's like to taste a hamburger or see the color green. Gotcha. Well, that wraps it up for my questions. Um, any comments from you, David? Uh, this, was, <laughs> this was a great conversation, JW, and I, I hope... Uh, I hope whether it's uh, reading each other's minds in an acapella group or uh, or someday making learning that much easier, I hope we can we can see the day when when uh, we figure out exactly how our brain is producing uh, the the world that we that we 
experience. Awesome. Um, I'll make sure that, you know, wherever you're listening to this or viewing this, um, you'll have access to the current paper that's out, right? Um, it's more of just the outline of what's going to happen with the experiment at this point. There are no results. Uh, when do you think those results will be out, by the way? Uh, we're hoping in the next uh, year or two. So just check back, stay tuned, and uh, we'll get back to you. Oh, that's, that sounds like eons for like someone that's like me that's currently in finance is like oh every quarter something has to happen but okay <laughs> one year to two years we'll, we'll be able to circle back all right. that's academia yeah <laughs> all right perfect well thank you so much for your time david and uh hopefully we'll talk again soon i know you have other research so thanks jw bye nora yeah she's quiet now <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.